Amen. Um, today, we are drawing to a close a series of sermons we've been working on this summer, uh, where we've taken note at the various encounters that Jesus has had with uh, people in his ministry. And um, every time Jesus had an encounter with someone, that person left that encounter radically transformed and changed. Um, and even people who knew Jesus for a long time could have an experience that would continually, uh, that would continue to transform their life. So for instance, this morning, we're going to look at um, those who were in a three-year private seminar with Jesus, his disciples, who, who spent day and night with him, who listened to everything that he taught and saw everything that he did and should have known the most about him. These very uh, disciples who were following this rabbi had an experience that radically transformed their life even after he died. So let's look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Uh, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, for those of us who don't remember, in my former book, uh, Luke, the Apostle Luke is writing this book of Acts. His former book was the Gospel of Luke. So he told the story of Jesus in that Gospel, and now he's continuing that story of Jesus in the book of Acts. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem... But wait on the gift of my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Now, theology matters. Theology makes a difference. Um, and those of us from the Reformed tradition, uh, if you're not familiar with it, we love theology. We, we love to put these intellectual concepts into order. We not only love theology, we love systematic theology. Get it all decently and in order and make sure it's transferable. And we know that everything, all the concepts are right there. It's the foundation for who we are and what we believe in and how we act. We love theology. And theology matters. I mean, it, it's more than just, you know, big words of confusing concepts. It's more than just soteriology and Christology and eschatology and all the other ologies that you can think of. It's more than just that. It has very practical significance. It, it changes lives. But we don't often think of theology that way. We think of them as intellectual concepts, and then we just kind of move on to something that's more pragmatic and more important. 
Now we've been thinking together about encounters with Jesus that changed people's lives, and we've been portraying those things on our bulletin cover each week. And if you take out your bulletin, you'll notice that this week's bulletin cover has no name in there. And you'll go, they've made a tragic error. What's the matter with those people? Can't they get their bulletins right? No, this was actually intentional. Because what we'd like you to do today is to put your name on the name tag. As I'm talking today, I'd like you to think about how this applies to your life. How is Jesus transforming your life, and what does this whole concept of the ascension have to do with any kind of transformation anyway? I'm just going to talk a little bit about um, what the ascension is, what the ascension means, and what difference the ascension even makes. So these disciples have been with Jesus for about three years. They each had their own private transformative moment when they first met Jesus, and then they continued to be shaped by his ministry for the rest of the time that they were with him. And they experienced Jesus' death and his burial, and were visited by him after the resurrection, we're told. But I think it's hard for us to kind of get our heads around this idea that somebody was actually walking and talking with a resurrected Savior. That the Jesus who had been with them when he was teaching was the Jesus who was now back as a resurrected Savior, spending, we're told, 40 days with them on a regular basis, interacting with them and teaching them, answering their questions. So when they were with Jesus, they said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore your kingdom to Israel? Now, a couple of weeks ago, I said in a sermon, and I'm, not, I'm sure you remember this. Actually, I had to look it up myself, or maybe you don't remember it. It's hard for us to learn new things about our faith. But it's even harder to unlearn the things that we know. It's hard to learn new things, but it's even harder to unlearn the things we know. Classic example is right here with the disciples, right? What they knew in their mind was a kingdom that would come from a Messiah who would come in and defeat the Roman Empire, restore the people of Israel to their rightful place as the most powerful nation in the world, it would be like King David was, and, and Israel would be restored to the way it was when King David was the ruler. They still had that in their mind. No matter how many times Jesus told them, that's not going to be that way, that's not the way it's going to happen, my kingdom's about something else. No matter how many times he told them, they just didn't get it. Because they couldn't unlearn what they'd been taught their entire life. And so they asked this question again, even of the risen Savior. It, it, is now the time? Is now the time you're going to take over Israel and, and put us in the rightful place? And the response is that it's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what Jesus is saying here is you're focusing on the wrong things. First of all, you've got the wrong idea about the kingdom, and then secondly, you're worried about when I'm coming back. You know, let's forget about worrying about when I'm coming back. How many, we've all lived through how many times where someone's predicted the return of Jesus. You know, there's probably another date off in the future. Someone has it all set. October of 2021. 20, you heard it here first. <laughs> and people, you know, that some people sell everything and they get all ready and Jesus is coming back. I mean, I, I'm not really sure how you can read this passage and do that. How can you worry about when the time is coming when... Jesus said, don't worry about that. You know what you should be worrying about? Is how you can introduce me to people who don't know me. 
The people who are closest to you in the town where we are right now, Jerusalem, the people who are outside of that circle a little bit further in Judea, the people who are in Samaria, which represent the people that you hate and don't like, take my love to them too, and then even to the places that you can't imagine right now. The responsibility of the disciples of Jesus is to take the love of Christ to the rest of the world and not sit around worrying about when Jesus might come back or predicting when he's going to come back and letting him do everything. You've got your mind and focus on the wrong things, Jesus is saying. And as soon as we're done saying that, poof, there he goes, up into the sky, behind the clouds. Now how would you react to that? Here's how I would react to that. I mean, wouldn't you stand in awe? You were standing there having a conversation with Andy Mahler, and all of a sudden, poof, he's gone. Now, Lisa would like that, but the rest of us would be concerned. <laughs> I mean, who knows? You know, all of a sudden, I mean, seriously, you stand, you would be in awe. Your mouth would be dropping. You would be gaping open. You'd be wondering what's going on. And two angels come and go, okay, why are you standing here? I mean, I'm not even sure it could have been five seconds before the angel shows up. Okay, your job as disciples is not to stand here and be in awe of Jesus and the fact that he ascended into heaven. Your job is to get out. He gave you an assignment. Move it along. Go find somebody who doesn't know Jesus and introduce, you, introduce them to him. That's what your responsibility is. Don't stand there and just go, oh, I love Jesus. It's okay to love Jesus. But what Jesus wants you to do is to go to share the love of Jesus. Not to simply just be in love with Jesus. One theologian has written that the ascension, when it's really understood, becomes an irreplaceable, important resource for living our lives in the world. And it's a resource that no other religion or philosophy of life holds out to us. You ever think of the ascension that way? It's so important that it's a resource that no other religion or philosophy of life holds out to us. You see, the ascension ushers in a new relationship with Jesus and his relationship with the world and with us. It's not simply Jesus returning to where he came from. We have to kind of get that out of our mind. Jesus came from heaven, right? Lived among us. That's the incarnation. And then, oh yeah, in the ascension, he just went back. That, that's not what's happening here. Well, it is what's happening, but that's not what's happening. He isn't just going back to where he came from. He's assuming an entirely new role. He's ascending to have a different spot in life and to do something completely different than he'd ever done before. Now, when you think about ascending, what do you, what do you think about? I mean, if we all went out in the lobby and we went to the second level of the, uh, of the building, we would do what? We would either climb the stairs or we would ascend the stairs, right? I mean, it's a fancy word. You know, it's the kind of word I would use. You wouldn't use that. I, you know, I, oh, we ascended the stairs. It's so sophisticated, right? It's one way to go. It's going from one level to another. You ascend. You climb a ladder or you ascend the ladder if you're very sophisticated. But we also use this word ascend in different ways, right? Someone uh, ascends the throne in England. If the queen dies, someone's going to ascend to the throne. They're, they're going to have a new position. They're going to have a new role. They're going to have a new status. So let's say, um, let's say you're a teacher in a school. And... Uh, the principal takes a job somewhere else. And you apply for the job of principal. 
And you're chosen for that job. So now what do you got? You're going to ascend, in sophisticated language, to a whole other role and status. And everything changes, right? Your fellow teachers used to hang out within the lunchroom and talk about everybody and really badmouth the principal. Now you're the principal. Your role and your status has changed. And your relationship with those people has changed because of it. Um, when I graduated from, from college, I went and taught high school for a year, and then I came back and I went to seminary in Holland, and I started coaching football at Hope right away. And I ascended to the position of coach. I got paid nothing, but I ascended. I got a shirt that said coach. And everything changed because the people that had been my teammates two years earlier that were still playing football, I was now their coach. And I had a different status and a different role that I had to play. And it was a little awkward. It was a little different. When Jesus ascends into heaven, he transforms into a different role and a different status. The Apostles' Creed that we recite on a regular basis says it this way. He ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. You know, sitting at the right hand of God the Father is code language, right? For a position of power and status. These are the very positions that James and John wanted, right? They wanted the positions of power. One at the right hand and one at the left hand. When you go into your kingdom, Jesus, can, can we have the positions of vice president and secretary of state? We'd like to be those in your kingdom. We'd like to have those positions of power and authority. We'd like our status to be above the rest of the apostles. That's what they were asking. Now Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. And has the status and the power that goes with that. I mean, Jesus was always the king of kings. But he was also limited to his power on earth. Now he's the king of kings sitting at the right hand of God the Father. It's a new role as head of the human race. The ascension means that, that Jesus is going to be the king and it's solidified in a different way. And he's going to come to make, place judgment upon people. And we'll get to that in a few minutes about what that means pragmatically. But the second thing that happens with the ascension of Jesus, the second important meaning for this for us is that our relationship with him has been completely transformed. I mean, as long as Jesus was incarnated and living on earth, his influence was limited, right? So when he taught the 5,000 on the hillside, he taught the 5,000 on the hillside. That's where he was. He couldn't be anywhere else. And when he fed the 5,000, when he was done teaching, he fed the 5,000 over there. He couldn't feed anybody else. His influence at that time was limited to where he was physically present. When Jesus ascends, he's no longer limited to time and space. Not if you're still awake. Are you getting this now? He's no longer limited to time and space. He can be everywhere all the time. That transforms everybody's relationship with Jesus and guarantees an intimacy that we can have with him at all times. So that as we are worshiping here this morning in this sanctuary, we are embracing and loving Jesus and he's hearing what we have to say to him. But guess what? The same thing's happening to the people who are worshiping around the corner at Faith CRC. And the same thing is happening. Jesus is down there at Christ Church of Oakbrook. Well, maybe not. But anyway, he's other places. Now he's down there at Christ Church of Oakbrook and he's around at the Lutheran Church right behind us here. 
and he's in the western suburbs and other places. Jesus right now is wherever worship is going on. To the largest congregation in the city of Chicago, to the smallest storefront. Jesus is in the biggest college campus worship experience that you could imagine on any campus in the United States right now. And he's with the two or three people who are next door in the chapel. We're worshiping him at the hospital as well. He's everywhere all the time. So when he says to the disciples, I will be with you always, he's saying to us, I will be with you always. There's no place in the world that you can be or go where I won't be with you. Timothy Keller has written about the ascension that it doesn't mean the loss of intimacy with Christ or his leadership or his advocacy. It means the magnification and the infinite availability of all of these. And it isn't, Christ ascended, but he didn't go away from us. It made him, his power and influence magnified for all of us. He can be everywhere all the time now. So if, indeed, um, the ascension allows Jesus to have a different role and status in life, and if it means that he can be magnified, so what? I mean, I'm a so what guy. I love these theological concepts, but so what? What pragmatic difference does it make in my life every day? Well, first of all, I think it means that we can have increased intimacy with Christ as well. So if you read the Gospel of John, you read about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, the first woman who encounters him is Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene has this encounter with the living Savior and realizes that it's Jesus. And so the first thing that she wants to do is to run and give him a big hug and just hold him, right? I mean, this is the person who transformed and changed her life. She thought he had died. And now he's standing there alive again. I get it that she wants to run over and give him a big hug and just hold on to him. I never want to lose you again. I can't bear the thought of it. Now, if you're not a hugger, you don't get that. I'm a hugger. I get that. And what does Jesus say to Mary Magdalene? Don't hold me. Don't hold me. Don't hold on to me is actually what it says. Don't hold on to me. Well, that sounds kind of rude, doesn't it? I mean, it's not anything theological or physical. I mean, he tells Thomas to touch him. He tells Mary not to hold him. Very, just very confusing. Don't hold on to me. Big phrase. Don't hold on to me because... I'm not going to be here all the time. In fact, you don't want me here all the time. Don't hold on to this me. I'm going to ascend into something much bigger and more powerful. Don't hold on to how you know me now. I'm going to expand what it means to know me. I'm not going to be limited to this time or this place anymore. I'm going to be with you always, no matter what happens to you, no matter where you are physically or emotionally or spiritually. Mary, I'm going to be with you. St. Augustine wrote about it this way. You ascended from before our eyes, and we turned back grieving, only to find you in our hearts. They lost Jesus once. He was buried. 
He returned to life again. They thought they had him back. He ascended and was gone again. They may have grieved at that point, Augustine is saying. Only to discover that he's alive in our hearts. Jesus never leaves us. Our intimacy with Christ is never interrupted. Life can seem like that's what's happening. It's what it seemed like to Mary Magdalene. It's what it seemed like to the other people that we met in this series of sermons, Martha and Mary and Lazarus, the woman at the well and Legion, and all the other characters who met Jesus. They were all intimate with him, and at the ascension, he grew even more intimate. And 2,000 plus years later, you and I can be equally intimate with Jesus as those who walk the face of the earth with him. Nothing, nothing, nothing can disrupt the intimacy that we have with Jesus Christ. And the ascension guarantees that for us. And it's the primary thing that Jesus wants with us is this loving, intimate relationship. Secondly, this whole ascension demonstrates the power of Christ. The personal nature of Jesus through the ascension is a blessing. But it also reminds us that Jesus is supremely powerful. As the King of Kings, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, He controls all things for His people. And that should give us a sense of peace. I mean, the Apostle Paul writes about that in Ephesians chapter 1. He raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. And so whenever we get nervous about what our company is doing or about what the economy is doing or about what the politicians are doing or about how our nation is going to hell in a handbasket and is never going to recover, about how the culture is going, about the rise of Ike, whenever we get nervous about all that stuff, you know who the King of Kings is who rules over all this stuff? He's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And that should bring us a sense of peace and not anxiety. And that's the transformative nature of the ascension. I mean, how can I preach a sermon with, with doctrine in it without quoting from the Heidelberg Catechism? I'd almost be a heretic, right? In the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 46 is a very complicated question. What, do you, what does it mean that we believe in the ascension? That Jesus continues there for our interest, continues in heaven for our interest, for our interest until he comes again to judge the quick and the dead. He rules and reigns in heaven, not for his own interest, for our interest. So, we have this passage in the book of Romans that we stumble over all the time. Right? Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
for those who are called, called according to his purpose. And the reason we trip over this is because we don't read it right, we don't think about it right. It doesn't mean that bad things aren't going to happen, but that God can work good things out of bad things. And, and probably all of us can think of something in our life that was horribly tragic or difficult or painful, and now when we look back in the rearview mirror, we understand, oh, really, God really kind of used that to me, to bring something beautiful out of it, to make something different out of it. So, I have told the story um, before in a sermon about this 16-year-old girl um, on my basketball team in Traverse City who um, had, was diagnosed with leukemia. And Katie went through a whole year of treatment and difficulty and ups and downs. And um, It's a long and beautiful and wonderful story. From the very beginning of her diagnosis, Katie said, I do not believe that God gave me cancer. But I believe that God is going to use my cancer to help other people. This is a 16-year-old kid who's smarter than most of us as adults about theology. I don't believe that God gave me cancer. But I believe that God is going to use it. This is Romans 8.28. You're living through it. Eventually, eventually, Katie succumbed to the cancer and graduated to heaven. And probably six or eight months later... Um, I was going to preach a sermon in our church in Traverse City on Romans 8, 28, and uh, the Holy Spirit gave me an idea. Hey, maybe I could have Katie's dad come and do the conclusion of the sermon to talk about what good things have come out of Katie's death, because I've been in conversation all the time. He had a million of them. He had thousands of them, the good things that came. I mean, so think about this a second. What good can come from losing your 16-year-old daughter? I mean, I... It's the most impossible thing in the world as a parent to imagine losing one of your children. What good could ever come out of that? But Katie's dad, Pat, could see all sorts of good things that were happening. And he couldn't not see it because Katie wouldn't let him. You see, I don't think that God gave me cancer, but I know he's going to use my cancer for good. That echoed in the back of his mind. So Pat came and spoke at our church. He named four or five things that, that were positive things that came out of Katie's death. He said, first and foremost, my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as a practicing Roman Catholic has been completely transformed. I see everything differently now. I continue to be a devout believer and a devout Roman Catholic. When your daughter's got cancer and she's 16, you get knocked to your knees, and it changes everything. My faith in Jesus is stronger than it's ever been. One significant positive outcome. Number two, there are kids at Katie's high school who are going to be able to go to college now who might not be able to afford it before because there are scholarships in Katie's name that are going to go to some of those kids who can't afford to go to school. People made financial contributions. That happened. Thirdly, he said, there's now going to be a pediatric oncology unit in Traverse City, Michigan, which they never had before. Katie went once a week to Ann Arbor to get her oncology treatments. Other kids would go to Grand Rapids. Well, Grand Rapids is closer. It's about two and a half hours away to the hospitals there. It's about three hours to Ann Arbor. Back and forth, back and forth. But now there's a pediatric oncology unit in Traverse City where pediatric patients can receive their oncology treatments right there in town. Could there be a more positive outcome from that? 
And then Pat, in his own inimitable way, said, um, and the last thing is that this devout, died in the wool, I'm a Catholic, and I don't have a lot of room in my life for Protestants, is speaking at a worship service at a Protestant church. And shouldn't we have more of this kind of cooperation and love between one another and not separation? I never thought this would ever happen. God works things together for good in all circumstances, even the death of your 16-year-old daughter. And then also we see in this passage some personal guarantees, right? I mean, there's not a lot of guarantees in life. You don't guarantee a lot. I'm going to guarantee that, but I will give you one right now. We're not going to be done at 11. I can guarantee that. There aren't many things in life that are sure things. But Jesus' ascension guarantees us things that are so central to our lives and the existence of human beings that we oftentimes forget, right? Um... So Maslow does this whole hierarchy of needs things, and the first thing is that you know you need to, you need you need food and shelter. Those are the most things. Those are things we fight for, right? I need food and shelter. Those are the highest needs we have. And, and then we need to love and be loved. We need to love and be loved. We need to be in a relationship with one another. These are the hierarchy of needs that we have in life. Those are things that we have to take care of. And so we focus on those kinds of things. But as a person, if you have food and shelter, what ultimately would you like to know about? Well, I think people would like to know that they're forgiven, that they're accepted, and that they're delighted in by God the Father through the person of Jesus Christ. I have a buddy who used to say, you know, you ever see a Hearst hauling a U-Haul rev? All the stuff we collect, all the money that we have, when you die, it all just doesn't, what does it mean? But if I know that I'm guaranteed eternal life, that's what I need to know in the end. That's what I need to know in the end. So in the book of Hebrews, the writer says that a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself on the cross. And therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And when John writes about it, he writes about it this way. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not, not, so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, when Jesus ascended to heaven at the right hand of God the Father, he becomes our advocate. All right? If you've got a lawsuit against you, you go out and hire a lawyer, and you hire the best lawyer that you can hire, because you need an advocate. You know that somebody's going to go before the judge and represent you. And you don't try to represent yourself, because then you have an idiot as a client. You hire an advocate who goes for you and argues on your behalf and knows the system and knows what to say. And you have complete faith in that advocate to represent you before the judge. That's exactly what 
what the writer of the Hebrews and 1 John are talking about. You and I have an advocate before the throne of God who's arguing our case before him and saying, you know what? I know on the surface, you know, Reb seems like a miserable, disgusting person. Because he is. But we should forgive him and welcome him into the kingdom and usher him into heaven. I don't know about you, I need that kind of advocate. I need somebody to go to bat for me. I need to know that the best representation I'm going to get is there on my behalf, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. So if you read a little bit further in the book of Acts, go to chapter 7, you read about this guy named Stephen, who is an evangelist and a preacher, and he's, being, uh, he's been arrested um, on trumped-up charges, and the religious leaders, the Jews, are going to stone him to death. He's going to be stoned to death. And as he's going to be stoned to death, he, he prays and he has this vision. And Stephen says, I see heaven that is open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Not seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. And what Stephen sees in that moment is Jesus standing there going, Hey, God, Stephen's on his way here. Look what's happening. He's on his way here. Give him a free pass. Forgive everything that he's ever done. I'm his advocate. I'm there for him. I'm fighting for him. I want him here. He needs to be here. Yay, Stephen. And Stephen has that vision of Jesus advocating for him before the throne of God and puts up no resistance to the stoning. The only thing he says is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. You think it doesn't make any practical difference to have an advocate before the throne of God on our behalf? You see, what Stephen discovered is that nothing earthly really mattered to him. No matter what people were doing to him, no matter how they were persecuting him, no matter how unjust it all was, it really didn't make any difference because he was looking at an eternity with God. The most important things were taken care of because he had the best advocate that no money could buy. So the ascension. Put your name on your name tag. Because ascension is about Jesus loving us, loving you. It's not just an event, it's not just an occurrence, it's not just a theological concept. It's a life changer which creates intimacy with Christ which provides for us a life-changing power and gives us the most important guarantee that we could ever have. Amen? Let's pray together. Your love, O Lord, is higher than the heavens. It's deeper than the deepest sea. It's wider than anything we could imagine. And everyone in this room this morning knows that we don't deserve that kind of love, which makes it so overwhelming. And so we say thank you, Lord. We say thank you with our presence here this morning in worship. We say thank you as we serve you here and around the world. We say thank you as we offer our tithes and offerings as tokens of what it means to be loved by you. 
And we would pray, O oh Lord, that you would send us to our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and to the other ends of the earth, where you're preparing people to hear your word. It might be a person at the gas station that we meet today, or in the mall, or at the restaurant, or one of our neighbors. Give us the eyes, the ears, the mind, the heart of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and close our worship in song. Thank you.